It was an intentional choice. It wasn't something that he did because he was being coerced or forced into it. Jesus willingly gave himself to walk down that road to die on the cross for us, out of love. Um, just an incredible picture and something that um, is similar to what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, our text is in Genesis chapter 45. Um, I'm going to be honest up front, it's going to take us a few minutes to get there. Um, there's a lot that's going to um, go on before we get to chapter 45. Um, but I love the book of Genesis. I don't know about you guys, but I really love the book of Genesis. One, because it has a lot of stories like the Old Testament does, and I super, super love stories. Okay, I love movies. I somewhat like books, um, depending on which book it is. And I love stories because, to me, it makes things a whole lot easier to understand, and it's easier for me to apply what it is that I can pull out of the story. But I love the book of Genesis. In my opinion, Genesis is to the Old Testament what Romans is to the New to where it's extremely foundational. You get so much of the doctrine in there. You get so much of a core foundation. Um, in the book of Genesis, we learn from the beginning uh, about the world. We learn how the world is formed and what it is. We learn about the fall, and we learn about redemption. We get the first glimpse of the gospel in the book of Genesis. So from the opening pages, you're not going to get far into it without learning what the gospel is. An incredible beginning to the Word of God. He also learned foundational truths of the Christian faith. This is also, again, with stories where we get many of our well-known characters. We learn about Adam and Eve. We learn about Abraham and Isaac and Noah and Jacob. And we learn about all these familiar characters, the, the individuals that we learn about the most in our Sunday school classes as children. A majority of those stories come from the book of Genesis. And we know a lot about these characters, um, and we, some of them we know their story, and some of them we just kind of know events in their lives. We don't truly know them. And I would say uh, this morning that Joseph is perhaps one of the most well-known biblical characters in the book of Genesis throughout the church and just in general. We generally tend to know who Joseph is as a person more than a lot of others. Um, you could argue Abraham, but with Abraham, we kind of know events in his life, but we don't truly know Abraham's story to the extent that we know the story of others. If I were to take a poll and to ask where Abraham came from, who he was, giving some background on him, um, I'm assuming that there wouldn't be um, a lot of us that would know because we're not given that right as much from the beginning. But we know a lot about Joseph. And I love the person of Joseph. Um, again, growing up, I, I was watching a, a play with Joseph, learning about Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, something a lot of you are probably familiar with. Um, there were songs in it that my mom um, would have. I, there's a VHS. Some of you don't know what a VHS tape is, some of you younger um, kids. See, I'm old enough I can say that now, because I do know what it is. I do know. Uh, but, we, but this morning, we're going to be looking a lot at Joseph. Um, I'm usually... I'm, I'm okay with uh, character studies in some extent. Typically, when you get to the Old Testament, it's find a character and study that character. Um, and to an extent, I agree with that in that it can be done well, but it can also be done very poorly. When we look at biblical characters, it's easy to say, how can we be like Joseph? How can we be like David? How can we be like Abraham? And we end it with, how can we be like this person? Now, that's an okay start, but at the end of every biblical study, every character study of any person, it should ultimately point us where? 
to Christ. How can we be like David in this situation? Yeah, David did an awesome job, but you know what he also did? He killed somebody. He had an affair. David was not perfect. David should not be our goal. He's a good example in circumstance of what we can look to do. We can see how actions are played out. But a character like David should not be our goal. A character like Joseph should not be our goal. The character of Christ should be our goal. And ultimately what we're going to see this morning is that while certain individuals and certain people, specifically Joseph today, did some things right, he was a good example in a certain circumstance. He is not the goal. He is not who we should strive to be like. But ultimately, like everyone else, everything points to the person of Christ, even all the way back in the Old Testament. You know, it was easy to separate the Old and New Testament and say, New Testament is about Jesus, and the Old Testament is just about God and the law. And seeing a, a great distinction there, as if there's some ocean of difference from the Old Testament to the New But what we do know, and because Jesus himself told us this, is that they're exactly the same. They're both written by God. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is written by God. All of it. That means even the parts that we don't like. And there are parts that we don't like. Because it tells us we can't do things that we would like to do. It tells us that we may have to hurt. And that doesn't sound good to me. I wish I was told, hey, everything's going to be perfect. You're going to make a whole bunch of money and you're never going to make your wife upset. That last one would really be awesome. But that's not the case. The whole Bible, Old Testament and New, is written by God, and they both belong to us. It's not Christians get the New Testament, and and Jews get the Old Testament, and we kind of keep those separated. Don't ever intermingle. Everything is all together. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 46, For had ye believed Moses... Ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is telling them, look, had you believed what it is that was already written, had you believed in the Old Testament, had you believed what Moses wrote in Genesis, then you would have believed me, because he was talking about me. And when we start to see these two as running together, it makes everything from the Old Testament so much clearer to us, because we see it's not just, this story is not going to be just about Joseph. The story of Abraham is not about Abraham. It's not about Joseph. It's not about David. It's not about Isaac. Pick a character. It's not about him. It's all about Christ. Everything is. And when you see it in that whole, one, it keeps our focus once again on the cross and on Christ. But two, if you're like me, you just gain such a greater appreciation for the Word of God as a whole and saying, wow, God, how is this so perfectly planned from the beginning? Everything runs together. There's no flaws. Nothing is wrong with it. From the very beginning, you have always had a plan. And this morning, as we're, we're dealing with Joseph, uh, we're going to look at an example of forgiveness which points us to Christ. In my opinion, outside of the cross, the greatest example of forgiveness that we see. And the reason I think that forgiveness is so important is because it affects each and everything that we do every day. It affects our relationships with one another. It affects how you view yourself. It affects how you view God. One thing that is going to be universal in the world is pain. Every single one of us, every single one of you has dealt with pain on some level at some point in your life. I feel very comfortable in saying that's safe to say. Another thing is that 
Well, you can find yourself on, on two sides of this. You can either say, A, I need to forgive somebody still, and I haven't. Or B, I need to be forgiven for something. Forgiveness is something that penetrates all areas of our lives. We either need to be forgiven or we need to do a better job at forgiving. We continue to see this all throughout Scripture. On um, The song that Lori sang, the whole picture of it, the whole story, the whole scene was about Christ going to the cross to do what? For forgiveness of sins. For redemption. Because of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. Forgiveness is at the core of everything that we do and it affects all of our lives. It affects all of our relationships. And that's going to get us here up to uh, Genesis chapter 45. Before we get into it, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we have this opportunity to, to open up your word, to see how, how the Old Testament and the New run together so perfectly, that you are so present um, in every passage of Scripture. God, we thank you that, that all of these characters, all of these, these situations, all of these promises all point to your Son. God, most of all, we thank you that you did send your Son to die on the cross to atone for our sins. Father, we're just so thankful for the cross. God, I pray that as we continue through this morning, as we look at the context um, here in Genesis chapter 45, that as we continue throughout, we're able to see the need for forgiveness, especially as a body, especially as a church, especially as individuals who love you, that forgiveness is at the very core of who we are, that we need to be forgiving. God, I just pray that you would uh, make yourself known this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So leading up to Genesis chapter 45, there's a little bit of context here as we get into Joseph. Um, I fought with myself about do I go through the entire story of Joseph verse by verse, um, but that's a lot of chapters, and I figured none of you would want that. Just That's about 12 chapters or so. Okay, um, It's a lot, of, a lot going on, so I'm just going to kind of give you a brief recap. Uh, Joseph was one of many brothers, and he was sold into slavery. So his brothers were going to kill him. His actual brothers had threatened to kill him. They beat him up. They took a coat that his father had given him because he was the favorite kid. You know, as the youngest in my family, I understand what it's like to be the favorite um, and the most talented. Yeah. So, yeah, and plus humble. There you go. Um, but, but it's something that it's interesting. And trying to put myself in this scene, I'm trying to look at it and I'm reading this, and you're seeing that his brothers wanted to kill him, to actually kill him. These people were mass murderers, his brothers. In a few chapters uh, before they were threatening to kill him, we saw that they had just slaughtered the Shechemites. Just slaughtered people. So this is very different. Um, when these people are saying to Joseph, hey, we're going to kill you, and they're beating him up, there's, there's a different sense of I'm going to kill you there. Uh, when my brothers, when I was growing up, would say, I'm going to kill you, I'm thinking, eh, he's probably not. I'm probably going to come out of this one. And you guys all understand that we say things like that, but in this situation, and maybe some of you can, can attest to, my brother threatened to kill me, and I'm pretty sure he was serious. But these are people who had just recently slaughtered villages, slaughtered people. Mass murderers threatening to kill you would kind of perk up your attention. So instead of killing him, they decide to do something a little bit nicer, and they sell him into slavery. So at this point, him being enslaved and imprisoned is actually a blessing to him because he was going to get killed by his own brothers. 
It's a bad picture when slavery and prison is a blessing. That's not exactly what you're going for here. So he, so he becomes a slave, and he ends up at Potiphar's house, and he's faithful. Um, he was faithful to his parents beforehand, before his brother sold him in slavery, and now he's faithful as he's a servant for this man. All the way through, he's, a great, he's great, he's doing well. Um, the man sees that the Lord is with him and that he's being very successful in everything, but Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, tries to get him to sleep with her, and he says no, so he's doing the right thing. And where does that get him? Gets him thrown in prison because the wife runs off, tells Potiphar, hey, your servant, Joseph, was trying to seduce me. And as any husband, he responds angrily. He's not happy with the thought of another man trying to take his wife, so he throws him into prison. So once again, we continue to see this with Joseph. So he goes from being threatened to be killed by his brothers to being thrown into slavery to being a good servant. Doesn't get him anywhere. Then he gets thrown back into prison. While he's in prison, Joseph is interpreting dreams for people. He's interpreting dreams and God is allowing him to do this. And it gets him to the point where years later he's able to rise up into Pharaoh's court. As two years later, a cupbearer says, Hey, Pharaoh, I know you're having trouble with these dreams. And I don't know why I'm just now thinking of it. But I knew a guy that was in prison that can interpret dreams. I think he can help you. So it gets all the way to this point. Kind of a quick um, upbringing of the story. But Joseph gets all the way to the point of being... Very important individual in Pharaoh's court to interpreting dreams, to pretty much being lord over the whole house of Pharaoh. So the man who just recently was beaten up and almost killed by his brothers is now all the way to the point of basically being a ruler for Pharaoh. Pretty quick change, pretty big thing. And you could look at that and you could get up to that point in Genesis 41 and say, wow, Joseph made it. Look at him up there with Pharaoh. He's doing great. Everything is awesome. Look at how he's being rewarded for what he's done. And we could do that and we could stop there. Um, but, it, but if you stop there, we're going to forget the whole main point. Because the main point doesn't come in Genesis chapter 41. It comes a few chapters later, and, which is going to be the main portion um, this morning. But to just stop in Genesis 41 to the point where he gets to Pharaoh's court would be to f- be forgetting a couple things. Um, as we look into chapter 41, as Moses is writing this, he explains the relationship between Joseph and Pharaoh. He explains this relationship, and when you look at it and you study it, it's actually a perversion of what it was supposed to be, a perversion of what the relationship was supposed to be elsewhere. Um, we notice that Joseph is over Pharaoh's house, but he was supposed to be over Jacob's. Joseph is in Egypt, but where is he supposed to be? He's supposed to be in the land of promise, not in Egypt. Egypt was synonymous with enslaving God's people being a place where consistently it was, Lord, please deliver us from this. Deliver us from the Egyptians. That was not a place that you wanted to be as a person of God. Everything about it was against God. Joseph is clothed in a robe from Pharaoh. He's given a robe, but previously he had a robe from his father. His brothers, who threatened to kill him after interpreting a dream, Joseph said, hey, I had a dream. All of you are going to bow down to me. This is kind of weird. Uh, They didn't like that. Older brothers don't like the idea of bowing down to their younger brother. I've never tried it, but I assume my brothers would be upset. But now, they're gladly bowing before Pharaoh. These brothers are gladly going to bow before Pharaoh. Joseph is given a pagan name and a pagan wife by Pharaoh. 
this whole point we can look at and say, wow, Joseph was incredibly successful and look at how he's being rewarded. But look at what the rewards are. A pagan name, a pagan wife, being a lord over Pharaoh's house, not anything to do with God, being in a land that openly enslaves God's people. That's not the promise that God gives to his people is, look, you can rule pagans. You can be Captain Pagan, if you will. It's a loose term, very, very scholarly. And if we look back at Abraham, Abraham, um, he was instructing and saying, please give, give my son a wife, but not a pagan wife. Promise me you will bring him a wife, but not a pagan wife. So this was very serious. This is not just, oh, he had a wife that he probably shouldn't have had. No, this is a very serious, blasphemous relationship here. So we get to that point and and, and encourage you not to stop and just say, wow, Joseph was so successful, but to look at it and say, "This, this picture isn't right. This exact picture isn't right. At the end of Genesis chapter 44, we're gonna this is what brings us right up to 45. Joseph tests his brothers. And he sends them away. He tests them again, but holds on to one of the boys, Benjamin. And Judah, another one of the brothers, offers himself as a substitute so that Benjamin can go to his father. Right at the end of 44, one of the brothers offers himself up as a substitute to be held on to so that his brother Benjamin can return home to his father. We're going to see a little bit more about Judah here uh, later on, but what an incredible picture of Judah offering himself up as a substitute, as a replacement to take on the punishment of Benjamin so that Benjamin can return home to the Father and be loved. Just an incredible picture that we're able to see. Once again, the Old Testament pointing to the person of Christ, pointing to the substitution. And that gets us up to Genesis chapter 45. Uh, Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. So he gets to this point where this brother offers himself up and says, Hey, take me instead. Allow my brother to return home. And Joseph can't take it anymore. He sends everybody away, says, Go out from me. Verse 2, And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father live yet? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Wow, so so Joseph can't contain himself anymore. He's continuing to speak with his brothers who had been accused of stealing some grain. Again, they're in the midst of a famine. They're about two years into it. And he's in a position to help them. He's in this great authoritative position, and he can't take it anymore. He's weeping aloud, and he says unto his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? These people thought that Joseph was probably dead by this point. Likely he's going to be dead. If not, he's certainly not going to be a guy that's a ruler over all of Pharaoh's house. That's just not likely. They're looking at him and saying, who is this person? Joseph reveals himself as their brother. Wouldn't you assume that brothers would be happy to see one another, generally? 
that a brother that they thought that they had lost for so long is somewhat returned, that they see him and say, wow, that's our brother Joseph, that's great. But what is it that they had done? They had threatened to kill him. They sold him off into slavery, right? And at this point, they're being accused of stealing some grain, and this person has the authority to punish them. So if it's just some random Egyptian, like you would assume, then all they're guilty of is stealing grain. But if it's Joseph, there's a lot more that he can hold against these brothers. Yeah, you tried to kill me. I remember that. Yeah, you sold me into slavery, and I've been in prison for a long time. I remember that. All of the things that they had done previously could be held against him. And what does it say in verse 3? They were troubled at his presence. There wasn't any happiness. There wasn't any joy in seeing their brother. They were troubled at his presence. Verses 4 through 8. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. So again, he's reminding them, Hey, I'm Joseph, oh, whom you sold into Egypt. He reminds them what it is that had happened. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years, in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God, and he hath made a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. He starts off by saying, hey, I'm Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. But in verse 5, now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves. He's starting to let them off the hook. Hey, you did this to me, but, but don't be grieved. Don't, don't be angry with yourself. And he tells them that the famine's been for two years. There's still five years to come. This is all part of a dream that he had interpreted for Pharaoh, of a famine of seven years. They're two years in, and there's five years remaining, and these brothers are already begging for food. They're begging so that they can live. They need this. And he's in there and he's saying, there's still five years. You're not, even, you're not even halfway through this. But Joseph establishes that it is God who sent him to be ruler. God is the one that did this. He's, he's again letting them off the hook by saying, God sent me to, before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth. Joseph is handling this in a way that I do not believe that I would be able to do, just initially. To say, man, you guys have messed up my life. You don't know what it is that I went through. I have every right to not only throw you into prison, but I can have you killed if I want to. What you are going to do to me, I'm going to do to you. I'm going to balance the scales out. I'm going to make it even because that's, that's how I feel. But instead, he's not angry. He even tells, he doesn't even try to guilt them. Do you see that? He doesn't even try to make them feel bad about it. He says, don't be grieved. He says, don't be angry. It wasn't even you that did this. God is the one that did this. He removes any blame on their part. Move on down to verse 9. 
Haste ye, and go up to my father, and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household, and all that thou hast, come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Isn't that an incredible picture? Incredible picture of, go and tell my father what it is that I've told you. Go and tell him that you, you're, you and your family are going to be near to me, everything that you have. And in verses 14 and 15, and he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. I mean, we want to look at forgiveness. That's the picture right there. He doesn't even make them feel bad. He doesn't guilt them about what they did. That's usually the first step in us wanting to get back at somebody is, okay, I'll forgive them, but they need to know that they messed up first. I want them to feel bad about it. They need to know what it is that I felt. And when I think it's been enough, then I'll go ahead and I can forgive. He doesn't even do that. He skips all of that and just jumps right into, oh yeah, by the way, I'm forgiving you for all that. Totally fine. Here you go. You're still in the famine. You're going to be provided for. Everything is taken care of. And again, these are Jacob's children. Just an incredible picture, though, of, of this forgiveness where he falls down upon his brother and weeps. He, he kisses all of his brethren and wept upon them and all of his brothers talking with him. There's this promise of provision in, chapter, in verses uh, 10 and 11. It says, And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that you have. That, that covers everything. He's not picking and choosing, all right, six of you brothers were really nice to me, four of you not so much, and the other ones I'll decide day to day. That's everybody. That's mom, dad, brothers, even sheep and cows. Everything. Everything that you own, it'll be taken care of. And that's why I see this and I just look at it and say, wow, this has to be, outside of the cross, the greatest example of forgiveness because he had all of the cards. He had all of the reason to hurt his family, to hold it against them, to make them pay. But he doesn't do that. He extends forgiveness. Forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt, meaning that you do not have to pay. You don't have to pay at all. That means that if you come into my house and you just break my computer purpose, on purpose or an accident, and I just say, hey, that's fine, you know, $300, I'll just take $300 and we'll be okay. That's not forgiveness. I didn't cancel out your debt. I told you what your debt was and how if you pay that, then we'll be okay. Forgiveness is the complete cancellation 
of this debt. Because when I was looking at this and when I was kind of thinking about how uh, forgiveness tends to go, uh, when we say, I forgive you, it doesn't typically mean you don't have to pay anything. We're totally good right now. That's not always what it means when we say it. Usually, I forgive you means I'm not going to yell at you right now. Or I'm not going to hit you right now because I want to. We still end up withholding things. This is a husband or a wife or a friend who say to one another, I forgive you, but I just don't want to be around you right now. I don't want to be near you. Or saying to a parent, hey, I forgive you, but because you did this, I don't respect you anymore. I've lost respect for you. I can't forgive you to the point where I still respect you. Or a parent who doesn't recognize achievements of a son or of a grandchild. See, forgiveness comes in a lot of different ways, more so than just this transactional model of, you broke my computer, I'm not going to make you pay. Because if it's $15, $20, a lot of us are easy to go, oh, don't worry about it, it's totally fine. And we're good with that. But are we always forgiving to the point where we don't withhold time, affection, encouragement? See, it's all, those, all these little ways that we can kind of withhold forgiveness to the point of, hey, I understand that I'm supposed to forgive you, I'm really mad, but just don't talk to me. If my wife upsets me and I say, I forgive you, but I just don't want to talk to you the rest of the day. Have I forgiven her? No, because I'm still making her pay. The debt is, you don't get to talk to me for the rest of the day. And I think ways like this are some of the more um, common and the more familiar ways that we, we hold on to uh, this unforgiveness. We know that we're commanded to forgive. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, commands us by saying, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Do we look at that as our, our model and our picture for forgiveness? Do we look at it again? The picture is not just, how did Joseph forgive? How did only Joseph do it? Did Joseph do a great job in forgiveness? Yeah, he did. But that's not the best picture of forgiveness. The best picture is what's encouraged in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Christ is the model. Christ is the example. And when we know that we're commanded to forgive, but we choose not to, we're being disobedient. It's kind of this idea, and there's some irony with it, and I kind of laughed when I thought of it because it made me feel pretty stupid myself. This idea that I can, I can choose to not forgive you, because you did something wrong to me. So you did something against me, and you sinned. Well, now I'm going to sin by choosing not to forgive you. That's the he hit me first way of forgiveness. Oh, I don't have to forgive him, because you don't know what he did to me first. Well, relating it back to this picture of Christ, as we always should, what, is, what would that be? What if God were to do a he hit me first concept of forgiveness? I don't know if I can send, I'm not sending my son. They sinned against me first. Why do I need to do anything? Well, following that line of thinking, then Christ never comes. Christ never dies on the cross. There's no redemption. There's no atonement for sin. Aren't we thankful that God doesn't think he hit me first? 
And again, it's kind of a silly way of looking at it, but it's the only way I could think of it. It's this childlike mindset. And as a body of believers and as a church, we need to be stepping up and encouraging one another to be forgiving. Church is all the time split up because people have arguments, people have disagreements, and they split up because they just can't learn to forgive one another. Christians, believers, they all agree that we should be forgiving, but we have a hard time forgiving one another all the time. We do, it's hard. Forgiving doesn't always feel great. We have people that we know that we should be forgiving, but we don't do it. And when we choose not to forgive a fellow believer, we're saying, hey, the cross was good enough for God to forgive you, and that's great, but it's not enough for me. For me to be satisfied, Jesus had to die, and I have to withhold my friendship, my communicating with you, my sharing of my life with you. If it's good enough for God to choose to forgive us by sending his son, why is it not enough for us? And, okay, so then we could say, yeah, we're supposed to be forgiving believers. All right, any believer I can think of, I'm going to make sure that I go and forgive them. That's great. Boom. What about unbelievers? You know, we're supposed to forgive them too. Because we know, uh, Romans 12 tells us that we don't avenge ourselves. God is the judge. God handles everything. We know, as believers, what is to come at the end of our days. We know that we're either in eternity with heaven, in heaven with God, or it's eternal punishment and separation from him. We know that. So the Bible says. It's true. But if we choose to not forgive an unbeliever, we're saying, hey, that eternal punishment, that might be enough for God. That might be bad enough. But in addition... I'm going to withhold my friendship. I'm not going to return your phone calls. I need to be angry with you too. Because what's going to happen at the end of your life isn't enough. And you could look at it and say, wow, those are pretty extreme ways of looking at that. But we're told to, to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. To use him as the example, if Christ's death on the cross was enough for God to forgive us of our sins, which were before the cross, during the cross, and will continue until we die, should that not be enough for us? When a person sins against you, they're sinning against a sinful person, not perfect and holy God. And keeping everything in that, in that picture of relating it to Christ, we see that forgiveness is directly linked to redemption. Flip back in uh, chapter 45 to verse 5. And again, I just love the song that Lori was singing, talking about the cross, this picture of Christ going to the cross willingly. Um, this whole um, atonement and redemption. We see verse 5. What is it? Joseph offers forgiveness, saying that God sent him to preserve life. It says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. God sent me here to preserve life. And he goes on with the promise in verses 10. Basically, it's to preserve your lives and the lives of your flock and of your children and your children's children. Because the whole book of Genesis, mainly is, it's talking about this preservation. When we see this, when we look at these stories, those characters that I mentioned before, we see that it's this preservation of the seed all that's going to eventually lead up to Christ. 
Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall, and we see Adam and Eve, and we see punishment put down. We see that the, the seed of the serpent is going to be an enmity with seed of the woman. And we see in Genesis chapter 4, the first murder, where Cain, the seed of the serpent, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. But at the end of chapter 4, we see that there's someone else that comes along, Seth. We see that Seth is going to be born, and now Seth is part of that promised seed. From Seth, or from Adam all the way up to Noah, there's about 10 generations where the seed is preserved. God wipes out the whole earth, preserving just those on the ark. And one of Noah's sons, Shem, is become, becomes this promised seed. Down to Terah, to Abraham. Abraham is the promised seed at this point. We know the story of Abraham. We know these events. We know the promise that God gives to Abraham of your generations and being, um, having all these many sons. We even sing the song, and we love the song. Abraham is now the promised seed, and he has two sons. He's promised a son, but he says, I can't be patient enough. So he goes, and he sleeps with Hagar, and they have a child, Ishmael. But is Ishmael the chosen seed? No, it's Isaac. It's the one that was promised. His two sons, it's the second son is the promised seed. So now it gets to Isaac. Isaac is the promised seed. Isaac has twins. Who's the promised seed? The firstborn Esau or the second one Jacob? It's the second one, Jacob. Jacob marries two women. He has 12 sons. It's a lot of kids. His 12 sons and the promised seed is not Joseph, the one that he loved most. The promised seed is the child of the wife that he didn't even want. He didn't even want that wife. He thought he was going to be marrying someone else. And the dad tricked him. Kind of a cruel trick. The son of the wife that he did not even want. And that son was Judah. Where did we see Judah? We saw him here in, in, at the end of chapter 44 as the one who offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin. Incredible picture. The, the seed, the promised seed that's going to ultimately come all the way down to the person of Christ, offering himself as a substitute all the while, all of this consistency. And as you read Genesis, you read each story individually, and you can say, wow, that's great, and that's awesome, and God's doing things. But then you picture it all together as a whole, and you see just the blinders come off, and it's like going from black and white television to color. Everything is so much more clear. Joseph is enslaved and imprisoned for two decades so that Judah would live and that, that this family would be protected, that the promised seed would again be preserved and that Judah would have a son eventually down the line uh, who we know as David and continuing down through the line of David all the way to the person of Christ. We always see God doing things. We always see him working. And when we look at forgiveness, there's a, there's a couple ways that, a couple different uh, types of people when it comes to forgiveness. We can, we can see these different examples um, as it plays out in life. And some of us, it may, we may be this person or it may be someone that we know. I'm just going to give three really quickly. There's the, it's not me, it's you person when it comes to forgiveness. This person, uh, they would know, this person when they're um, supposed to be forgiving, it's, Everything that you do, horrible. You step on their toe, you hit them with a truck, basically. Doesn't matter what it is that you do, they are not letting you off the hook. But when they sin, why is that a big deal? 
not even that big of a deal. That's not what I meant. It's almost as if it never happened. This, this person is very big on saying, hey, your sins are huge and mine are super small. This is also what I called Matt in high school. Okay? Uh, look, I may have messed up, but it wasn't really that big of a deal, and let me tell you why. And that's how I was, and that's how I looked at it, but when you messed up, I couldn't wait to tell you how you messed up. I couldn't wait for it. Wasn't able to forgive. The second person is the I can't do it person. They just, eh, just can't do it. Just can't forgive you for anything. They're always needing to match the scales that more punishment is always needed. That you can come begging for forgiveness and no matter what happens, they still just can't ever seem to forgive you for something. They just can't do it. And how does that person view God? They must think that God is never satisfied. That God always has to give more punishment. They're constantly doubting their relationship with God. And the third person is the ask me first. Well, I'd forgive them if they just asked. If they asked me, I'd forgive them, but they didn't ask, so I'm not going to forgive them yet. And this is dangerous because I think it's something that that a lot of us look for and that I, something that I was always um, looking for is, well, once they ask me, I will forgive them. But them asking is not a requirement for us to forgive. And I think that that's a crucial part as believers that we understand with forgiveness is that they don't have to ask for us to forgive them. Joseph forgave his brothers before they even knew who he was. He had already forgiven them before they knew that he was Joseph. But most importantly, Jesus died on the cross before we asked. It was while we were still sinners, before we even asked. He had already forgiven and died on the cross for us. Are you thankful that we didn't have to ask God to send his son to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven of sins? Because I wouldn't have asked. I would have been so caught up in my sin, so caught up in everything else. Because if we believe that we have to ask first, in order, that they have to ask first in order to be forgiven, then just look at Christ on the cross. Did he say, Father, forgive them since they asked so nicely? Forgive them because they really want to be forgiven? No, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know. Just this perfect picture of forgiveness by Christ. And I look at it and I, I see the story of Joseph and I see it pointing right to the cross. And I look at the cross and see what it is that Christ did. Willingly walking himself down to the cross for forgiveness of our sins. The sins that we commit against him every day. We shouldn't be so quick to hold on to grudges, to hold on to bitterness, to hold on to this, this sense of unforgiveness that we do. I know that it's hard. I know that it's not easy to always forgive somebody. But is it easy to live with that unforgiveness, to live with that tension, to live with that anger and with that hurt? And we can say, well, you don't know what that person did to me. But what is it that we, that we did to God? We, from the very beginning, sinned against him. And each and every day, even though we are aware of our sin, we continue to do it because we make choices too. 
We continue to do it. And even in verse 10, Joseph, as he forgives his family, he doesn't forget what happened. He says, yes, I'm aware that this happened. You sold me into slavery. But the beauty is that he remembered and he still loved him. In verse 10, he says that all the family will be near. He still wants them there. He still wants to be with them. In the same way that we sin, we despise and reject God, and he still sends his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, but then goes and prepares a place so that we can be with him. Isn't that incredible? That throughout all of that, God goes to set up a place for us so that we can be near to him forever. Like forever, ever, ever. Just an incredible picture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for, for the forgiveness and the redemption that you offer through your son. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to forgive one another. We thank you that, that you give us the example of your son, that forgiveness doesn't require that somebody ask us first, but that we're, we're obligated to give it. God, as believers and as, as a body, I just pray that you would allow us to, to really take to heart this this element of forgiveness, this part of our lives, this, this part of our spiritual walk that we're supposed to be doing. Father, I pray that, that the world would see a church, um, specifically here in Glenwood Springs, that would consist of people and of believers who are looking to forgive one another and forgive others and point them to you. God, as we continue to show our love for each other, as we show our love for you and as we forgive each other, I just pray that people in our, in our community, people in this world would look to see the truth of your Son and what it is that he did on the cross for us. Father, I just pray that you would continue to be with us today and allow us to have a proper understanding of forgiveness, always pointing back to Jesus Christ. It's in your name. Amen.